Part two, chapter five, section three of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part two, chapter five, section three. It was known that Father Corbelan had come out of the wilds to advocate the sacred rites of the Church with the same fanatical fearlessness with which he had gone preaching to bloodthirsty savages, devoid of human compassion or worship of any kind. Rumors of legendary proportions told of his successes as a missionary beyond the eye of Christian men. He had baptized whole nations of Indians living with them like a savage himself. It was related that the padre used to ride with his Indians for days, half-naked, carrying a bullock-hide shield, and, no doubt, a long lance, too, who knows, that he had wandered clothed in skins, seeking for proselytes somewhere near the snow-line of the Cordillera. Of these exploits Padre Corbelan himself was never known to talk, but he made no secret of his opinion that the politicians of Santa Marta had harder hearts and more corrupt minds than the heathen to whom he had carried the word of God. His injudicious zeal for the temporal welfare of the church was damaging the Ribierist cause. It was common knowledge that he had refused to be made titular bishop of the Occidental Diocese till justice was done to a despoiled church. The political jefe of Sulaco, the same dignitary whom Captain Mitchell saved from the mob afterwards, hinted with naive cynicism that doubtless their excellencies, the ministers, sent the padre over the mountains to Sulaco in the worst season of the year in the hope that he would be frozen to death by the icy blasts of the high paramos. Every year a few hardy muleteers, men inured to exposure, were known to perish in that way. But what would you have? Their excellencies possibly had not realized what a tough priest he was. Meantime the ignorant were beginning to murmur that the Ribierist reforms meant simply the taking away of the land from the people. Some of it was to be given to foreigners who made the railway, the greater part was to go to the Padres. These were the results of the Grand Vicar's zeal. Even from the short allocution to the troops on the plaza, which only the first ranks could have heard, he had not been able to keep out his fixed idea of an outraged church waiting for reparation from a penitent country. The political jefe had been exasperated, but he could not very well throw the brother-in-law of Don José into the prison of the Cabildo, the chief magistrate, an easy-going and popular official, visited the Casa Gold, walking over after sunset from the Intendencia, unattended, acknowledging with dignified courtesy the salutations of high and low alike. That evening he had walked up straight to Charles Gold and had hissed out to him that he would have liked to deport the Grand Vicar out of Sulaco anywhere to some desert island to the isabels for instance <laughs> the one without water preferably eh don carlos 
he had added in a tone between jest and earnest. This uncontrollable priest, who had rejected his offer of the episcopal palace for a residence, and preferred to hang his shabby hammock amongst the rubble and spiders of the sequestrated Dominican convent, had taken into his head to advocate an unconditional pardon for Hernandez the robber. And this was not enough. He seemed to have entered into communication with the most audacious criminal the country had known for years. The Sulaco police knew, of course, what was going on. Padre Corbelan had got hold of that reckless Italian, the Capataz de Cargadores, the only man fit for such an errand, and had sent a message through him. Father Corbelan had studied in Rome and could speak Italian. The Capataz was known to visit the old Dominican convent at night. An old woman who served the Grand Vicar had heard the name of Hernandez pronounced, and only last Saturday afternoon the Capataz had been observed galloping out of town. He did not return for two days. The police would have laid the Italian by the heels if it had not been for fear of the Cargadores, a turbulent body of men quite apt to raise a tumult. Nowadays it was not so easy to govern Sulaco. Bad characters flocked into it, attracted by the money in the pockets of the railway workmen. The populace was made restless by Father Corbelan's discourses. And the first magistrate explained to Charles Gould that now the province was stripped of troops, any outbreak of lawlessness would find the authorities with their boots off, as it were. Then he went away moodily to sit in an armchair, smoking a long, thin cigar, not very far from Don José, with whom, bending over sideways, he exchanged a few words from time to time. He ignored the entrance of the priest, and whenever Father Corbelan's voice was raised behind him, he shrugged his shoulders impatiently. Father Corbelan had remained quite motionless for a time with that something vengeful in his immobility which seemed to characterize all his attitudes. A lurid glow of strong convictions gave its peculiar aspect to the black figure, but its fierceness became softened as the padre, fixing his eyes upon Decoud, raised his long black arm slowly, impressively. And you, you are a perfect heathen, he said in a subdued, deep voice. He made a step nearer, pointing a forefinger at the young man's breast. Decoud, very calm, felt the wall behind the curtain with the back of his head. Then, with his chin tilted well up, he smiled. Very well he agreed with the slightly weary nonchalance of a man well used to these passages. But is it perhaps that you have not discovered yet what is the god of my worship? It was an easier task with our barrios. The priest suppressed a gesture of discouragement. You believe neither in stick nor stone, he said. Nor bottle, added Decoud without stirring. Neither does the other of your reverence's confidants. I mean the Capataz of the Cargadores. He does not drink. Your reading of my character does honor to your perspicacity. But why call me a heathen? True, 
retorted the priest. You are ten times worse. A miracle could not convert you. I certainly do not believe in miracles, said Decoud quietly. Father Corbelan shrugged his high, broad shoulders doubtfully. A sort of Frenchman, godless, a materialist, he pronounced slowly, as if weighing the terms of a careful analysis. Neither the son of his own country, nor of any other, he continued thoughtfully. Scarcely human, in fact, Decoud commented under his breath, his head at rest against the wall, his eyes gazing up at the ceiling. The victim of this faithless age, Father Corbelan resumed in a deep but subdued voice. But of some use as a journalist. Decoud changed his pose and spoke in a more animated tone. Has your worship neglected to read the last number of the Porvenir? I assure you it is just like the others. On the general policy it continues to call Montero a gran bestia, and stigmatize his brother, the guerrillero, for a combination of lackey and spy. What could be more effective? In local affairs it urges the provincial government to enlist bodily into the national army the band of Hernandez the robber, who is apparently the protégé of the church, or at least of the grand vicar. Nothing could be more sound. The priest nodded and turned on the heels of his square-toed shoes with big steel buckles. Again, with his hands clasped behind his back, he paced to and fro, planting his feet firmly. When he swung about, the skirt of his soutane was inflated slightly by the brusqueness of his movements. The great sala had been emptying itself slowly. When the jefe politico rose to go, most of those still remaining stood up suddenly in sign of respect, and Don José Avellanos stopped the rocking of his chair. But the good-natured first official made a deprecatory gesture, waved his hand to Charles Gould, and went out discreetly. In the comparative peace of the room, the screaming, Monsieur l'administrateur! of the frail, hairy Frenchman, seemed to acquire a preternatural shrillness. The explorer of the capitalist syndicate was still enthusiastic. Ten million dollars worth of copper, practically in sight, monsieur l'administrateur, ten millions in sight, and a railway coming, a railway. They will never believe my report. C'est trop beau. He fell a prey to a screaming ecstasy in the midst of sagely nodding heads, before Charles Gould's imperturbable calm. And only the priest continued his pacing, flinging round the skirt of his soutane at each end of his beat. Decoud murmured to him, ironically, those gentlemen talk about their gods. Father Corbelan stopped short, looked at the journalist of Sulaco fixedly for a moment, shrugged his shoulders slightly, and resumed his plodding walk of an obstinate traveller. And now the Europeans were dropping off from the group around Charles Gould, till the administrador of the great silver mine could be seen in his whole lank length, from head to foot, left stranded by the ebbing tide of his guests on the great square of carpet, 
as it were a multicolored shoal of flowers and arabesques under his brown boots father corbelan approached the rocking chair of don jose avellanos come brother he said with kindly brusqueness and a touch of relieved impatience a man may feel at the end of a perfectly useless ceremony a la casa a la casa this has been all talk let us now go and think and pray for guidance from heaven he rolled his black eyes upwards by the side of the frail diplomatist the life and soul of the party he seemed gigantic with a gleam of fanaticism in the glance but the voice of the party or rather its mouthpiece the sun decoux from paris turned journalist for the sake of antonia's eyes knew very well that it was not so that he was only a strenuous priest with one idea feared by the women and execrated by the men of the people martin decoux the dilettante in life imagined himself to derive an artistic pleasure from watching the picturesque extreme of wrong-headedness into which an honest almost sacred conviction may drive a man it is like madness it must be because it's self-destructive decoux had said to himself often it seemed to him that every conviction as soon as it became effective turned into that form of dementia the gods send upon those they wish to destroy but he enjoyed the bitter flavor of that example with a zest of a connoisseur in the art of his choice those two men got on well together as if each had felt respectively that a masterful conviction as well as utter scepticism may lead a man very far from the bypaths of political action don jose obeyed the touch of the big hairy hand decoux followed out the brothers-in-law and there remained only one visitor in the vast empty sala bluishly hazy with tobacco smoke a heavy-eyed round-cheeked man with a drooping moustache a hide merchant from esmeralda who had come overland to sulaco riding with a few peons across the coast range he was very full of his journey undertaken mostly for the purpose of seeing the senor administrador of san tome in relation to some assistance he required in his hide exporting business he hoped to enlarge it greatly now that the country was going to be settled it was going to be settled he repeated several times degrading by a strange anxious whine the sonority of the spanish language which he pattered rapidly like some sort of cringing jargon a plain man could carry on his little business now in the country and even think of enlarging it with safety was it not so he seemed to beg charles gould for a confirmatory word a grunt of assent a simple nod even he could get nothing his alarm increased and in the pauses he would dart his eyes here and there then loath to give up he would branch off into feeling allusion to the dangers of his journey the audacious hernandez leaving his usual haunts had crossed the campo of sulaco and was known to be lurking in the ravines of the coast range yesterday when distant only a few hours from sulaco the hide merchant and his servants 
had seen three men on the road arrested suspiciously with their horses' heads together. Two of these rode off at once and disappeared in a shallow quebrada to the left. We stopped, continued the man from Esmeralda, and I tried to hide behind a small bush. But none of my mozos would go forward to find out what it meant, and the third horseman seemed to be waiting for us to come up. It was no use. We had been seen. So we rode slowly on, trembling. He let us pass, a man on a grey horse, with his hat down on his eyes, without a word of greeting. But by and by we heard him galloping after us. We faced about, but that did not seem to intimidate him. He rode up at speed, and, touching my foot with the toe of his boot, asked me for a cigar with a blood-curdling laugh. He did not seem armed, but when he put his hand back to reach for the matches, I saw an enormous revolver strapped to his waist. I shuddered. He had very fierce whiskers, Don Carlos, and as he did not offer to go on, we dared not move. At last, blowing the smoke of my cigar into the air through his nostrils, he said, Senor, it would be perhaps better for you if I rode behind your party. You are not very far from Sulaco now. Go you with God. What would you do? We went on. There was no resisting him. He might have been Hernandez himself, though my servant, who has been many times to Sulaco by sea, assured me that he had recognized him very well for the capataz of the steamship company's cargadores. Later, that same evening, I saw that very man at the corner of the plaza, talking to a girl, a morenita, who stood by the stirrup with her hand on the grey horse's mane. "'I assure you, Signor Hirsch,' murmured Charles Gould, that you ran no risk on this occasion. That may be, senor, though I tremble yet. A most fierce man to look at. And what does it mean? A person employed by the steamship company talking with salteadores, no less, senor. The other horsemen were salteadores, in a lonely place, and behaving like a robber himself. A cigar is nothing, but what was there to prevent him asking for my purse? No, no, Senor Hirsch, Charles Gould murmured, letting his glance stray away a little vacantly from the round face, with its hooked beak upturned towards him in an almost childlike appeal. If it was the Capitas de Cargadores you met, and there is no doubt, is there, you were perfectly safe. Thank you, you are very good. A very fierce-looking man, Don Carlos. He asked me for a cigar in the most familiar manner. What would have happened if I had not had a cigar? I shudder yet. What business had he to be talking with rubbers in a lonely place? But Charles Gould, openly preoccupied now, gave not a sign, made no sound. The impenetrability of the embodied gold concession had its surface shades. To be dumb is merely a fatal affliction. But the king of Sulaco had words enough to give him all the mysterious weight of a taciturn force. His silences, backed by the power of speech, had as many shades of significance as uttered words in the way of assent, of doubt, of negation, even of simple comment. 
Some seemed to say plainly, think it over. Others meant clearly, go ahead. A simple, low, I see, with an affirmative nod at the end of a patient listening half-hour, was the equivalent of a verbal contract, which men had learned to trust implicitly, since behind it all there was the great San Tome mine, the head and front of the material interests, so strong that it depended on no man's goodwill in the whole length and breadth of the Occidental province, that is, on no goodwill which it could not buy ten times over. But to the little hook-nosed man from Esmeralda, anxious about the export of hides, the silence of Charles Gould portended a failure. Evidently this was no time for extending a modest man's business. He enveloped in a swift mental malediction the whole country with all its inhabitants, partisans of Ribiera and Montero alike. And there were incipient tears in his mute anger at the thought of the innumerable ox-hides going to waste upon the dreamy expanse of the campo, with its single palms rising like ships at sea within the perfect circle of the horizon, its clumps of heavy timber motionless like solid islands of leaves above the running waves of grass. There were hides there, rotting, with no profit to anybody, rotting where they had been dropped by men called away to attend the urgent necessities of political revolutions. The practical, mercantile soul of Senor Hirsch rebelled against all that foolishness, while he was taking a respectful but disconcerted leave of the might and majesty of the San Tome mine in the person of Charles Gould. He could not restrain a heartbroken murmur, wrung out of his very aching heart, as it were. It is a great, great foolishness, Don Carlos, all this. The price of hides in Hamburg is gone up, up. Of course the Ribierist government will do away with all that, when it gets established firmly. Meantime, he sighed. Yes, meantime, repeated Charles Gould, inscrutably. The other shrugged his shoulders. But he was not ready to go yet. There was a little matter he would like to mention very much, if permitted. It appeared he had some good friends in Hamburg, he murmured the name of the firm, who were very anxious to do business in dynamite, he explained, a contract for dynamite with the San Tome mine, and then, perhaps, later on, other mines, which were sure to the little man from esmeralda was ready to enlarge but charles interrupted him it seemed as though the patience of the senor administrador was giving way at last senor hirsch he said i have enough dynamite stored up at the mountain to send it down crashing into the valley his voice rose a little to send half sulaco into the air if i liked Charles Gould smiled at the round, startled eyes of the dealer in hides, who was murmuring hastily, Just so, just so. And now he was going. It was impossible to do business in explosives with an administrador so well provided and so discouraging. He had suffered agonies in the saddle and had exposed himself to the atrocities of the bandit Hernandez for nothing at all neither hides nor dynamite. 
and the very shoulders of the enterprising Israelite expressed dejection. At the door he bowed low to the engineer-in-chief. But at the bottom of the stairs in the patio he stopped short, with his podgy hand over his lips in an attitude of meditative astonishment. What does he want to keep so much dynamite for? he muttered. And why does he talk like this to me? The engineer-in-chief, looking in at the door of the empty sala, whence the political tide had ebbed out to the last insignificant drop, nodded familiarly to the master of the house, standing motionless like a tall beacon amongst the deserted shoals of furniture. "'Good night. I am going. Got my bike downstairs. The railway will know where to go for dynamite, should we get short at any time. We have done cutting and chopping for a while now. We shall begin soon to blast our way through.' "'Don't come to me,' said Charles Gould, with perfect serenity. "'I shan't have an ounce to spare for anybody. Not an ounce. Not for my own brother, if I had a brother, and he were the engineer-in-chief of the most promising railway in the world.' "'What's that?' asked the engineer-in-chief, with equanimity. "'Unkindness?' "'No,' said Charles Gould, stolidly. "'Policy.' "'Radical, I should think.' the engineer-in-chief observed from the doorway. "'Is that the right name?' Charles Gould said from the middle of the room. "'I mean, going to the roots, you know,' the engineer explained with an air of enjoyment. "'Why?' "'Yes,' Charles pronounced slowly. "'The Gould concession has struck such deep roots in this country, in this province, in that gorge of the mountains, that nothing but dynamite shall be allowed to dislodge it from there. It's my choice. It's my last card to play. The engineer-in-chief whistled low. A pretty game, he said, with a shade of discretion. And uh, have you told Holroyd of that extraordinary trump card you hold in your hand? Card only when it's played, when it falls at the end of the game. Till then you might call it a... Uh, a weapon suggested the railway man no you may call it rather an argument corrected charles gould gently and that's how i've presented it to mr holroyd and what did he say to it asked the engineer with undisguised interest he charles gould spoke after a slight pause he said something about holding on like grim death and putting our trust in God. I should imagine he must have been rather startled. But then, pursued the administrador of the San Tome mine, but then he is very far away, you know. And, as they say in this country, God is very high above. The engineer's appreciative laugh died away on the stairs, where the Madonna with the child on her arm seemed to look after his shaking broad back from her shallow niche. End of chapter 5